0: Well, that's why we're, why we're here, right? To, to understand how not just being the adopted child of God, but how we're a part of the family of God. How, how we're actually a part of something that's much bigger than ourselves, but that as we come together, we're actually part of the family of God as he designed it, how he intended it, how we would be when we come together. Over the last few weeks, we've been studying passages of Scripture that have taken us to places where we've been exploring how we are to share our faith. And what, we've, what I hope we've come to realize is it's not so much me being able to teach someone else the Bible as much as me being able to build a relationship with someone in such a way that they see the work of Jesus in my life. And what Jesus is doing and how he has taken hold of me, how he's redeemed me, how he's given me hope, how he's pointed his purposes out in my life and given me confidence to live by faith in who he's made me to be who I am. See, evangelism, as scary as that might be, the idea of sharing our faith in Jesus with someone else is not something that we do. It's not something I do like putting my shoes on in the morning or brushing my teeth when I brush my teeth. Tara's shaking her head like she's embarrassed. Sorry, Tara. Uh, Yes, I brush my teeth. Sharing our faith is not something we do like an activity in our day. It's who we're created to be. Like you you have this sense in your heart that there is something you want to give to someone. You want to make an impact. At work, we, we want to be someone who's successful at work, right? We want to we think that we contribute to the, the organization we're part of. When we think about our families, we, we want to we love on someone. We don't want to just have warm, gushy feelings for them. We want to think that, that our influence in their life makes a difference. And, and when we're not, we feel the weight of that guilt, the, the, the kind of feeling like we're missing the mark on being the person we're supposed to be in that family. The reason is uh, loving others, sharing our faith with others, is not something we do. It's who we're created to be. The faith that, that, that teaches us that it was, it, it gives us the faith, it reminds us of the faith that teaches us that it was Jesus who actually purchased us. It was Jesus' actions, not yours, that saves a person from the the guilt and the weight of sin and shame and and the death that is ours in living in that darkness and that sin. It's God that purchased our lives from this evil tyrant called sin that, that hungers to rule over our bodies and to reign in our lives, right? But God doesn't stop there. God continues he, he graciously and lovingly sets us free from sin's reign. He doesn't just rescue us from it, but he sets us free in a land that's wide open and spacious and, and allows us to, to walk beside quiet waters, peaceful waters, to, to graze in green pastures. In other words, to live in a place where everything we need, is, we, we trust, is provided for us. Now that might look different than what this world says what we need, but, but we have such a trust in God that, that we have no doubt that he will provide all that we need, no matter what circumstances we face. We trust that God is a gracious and loving God who sets us free from sin's reign and rule in our lives. He buys us out of that slavery to sin like he, like he rescues Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And leads us into this spacious wilderness where he provides for us day by day. See, I think, church, the reason why we're talking about this for a moment, is that something to be excited about. I think we look at the world around us and we see sin's hold on people's lives. We may not like calling it sin because it's, it feels like an uncomfortable world or word in our day and age today. But it's absolutely that. Sin has a hold on so many people's lives, and, and it leads them to a place where they're saying and doing things that they don't want to say and do, or believe things that they don't want to believe. And yet, we have something to share with them. We have that, 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 that gift to share with them about how God rescued us from slavery and led us out into the wilderness where he provides for us day by day, just as he provided for Israel day by day. Not just their, their, their daily bread, but also the, the direction he needed to lead them in their lives. You know, he, he sent a, what is it, a pillar of, of, of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day to lead them through the wilderness. And so he does in giving us his Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us day by day in faith. That's something we can be excited to share with others about. Because we don't know what their struggle is, but but if we listen, if we get to know them a little bit, we know where Jesus wants to enter into their lives and speak his love and his grace to them. But more than us pointing that out to them, we point to Jesus with our own lives and let them see Jesus. Let them consider Jesus' words and his promises and decide for themselves if, they, if, if that's something they believe and if that's something they want to trust in. And so, church, I, w- I want to encourage us this morning not to think about evangelism, not to think about sharing our faith with others, not to think about sharing the good news about Jesus Christ as something we should feel guilty about because we don't do it enough or, or feel like it's an obligation. Like as a Christian, I'm, I have to do this. I'm supposed to do this. But begin to pay attention to those places where Jesus has been at work in your life. Something you're excited about. You're excited to see where Jesus has shown up. And think about those opportunities that God might give you to, to share that with others. That not just random people, but people in your life, people you've been building relationships with. Point to Jesus. Point Jesus out to those people in your life that, that are there, and be excited about it. So don't, don't feel guilty. Don't feel obligated, but understand that, that we have a gift to share. Just like that woman at the well that we studied in John chapter 4, who ran back to the village and said, come and see this man. Come and see this man who, who, who told me everything about my life, who who knew me, he drew near to me. He wasn't ashamed. He didn't didn't shun me. He didn't ignore me or not talk to me. He came and spoke with me. And he told me all about my life. Come and see this man. Come and see for yourself. We're like that woman. Last week, week we we looked at how uh, it's not just a a matter of pointing people to Jesus, but then trusting in, in, in those moments when our lives point people to jesus we see that his power and his presence do the work that we could never do his power and his presence meets people in the depth of their hearts in the depth of their being and does a work that we could never even imagine doing because we can't see what's going on in the depth of someone's heart but god can And we trust that his power and his presence do a work of accomplishing his plan to reach people to the ends of the earth, right? To welcome them home, to make disciples of Jesus, to make students of followers of Jesus. And since he'll always be with us, empowering us to grow and expanding his church, What I want to leave us with as we close out this series is that his church will never go away. That this plan to make disciples of all the nations will never go away. It'll never stop, no matter how bleak it may seem as we think about how the world looks at this idea of religion and faith. God's plan and his purposes in building the church will never go away. Because it can never be stopped. So be encouraged, church. Your story is not in vain. The story you have to share is not meaningless. It's not not, uh, trying to to fill up a bucket one drop at a time. It's not hopeless. God's going to use your story as you allow him. What does that look like? It looks like you sharing your life with other people sharing your faith with G- in jesus with other people and what i mean by that is you're not teaching them about jesus you're merely telling them about the jesus you've come to know and put your trust in your story's not in vain it has a, a, a has a purpose because what we'll see in our passage this morning is that jesus is building his church we're not building the church Jesus is building his church, and he does so life upon life, through your life, through my life, through the lives of others, and nothing can stop Jesus' church from being built. Satan may huff and puff, but he will not blow this house down. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter uh, 16, and I read verses 13 to 19 for us. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19. It'll be on the screen. Uh, You know, if you have your phone or a tablet, you can can read it there. You can open up to one of the the apps there. Uh, You could grab a a Bible from the, the, the seat back in front of you. But allow me to read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19 for us. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's your word, through your word that we come to know you. It's through your word that you have revealed yourself to the, to the world around us and, and to us. So, Lord, may your word accomplish all that you've sent it forth to accomplish. May it not return to you void, but accomplish all that you desire in growing a people after your own heart. Work in us, we pray, through your word now and in the days to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Why is this important? Well, it was actually a, a Greek territory. It, it was a territory of non-Jewish people who worshipped other gods. And specifically, in this region, there's a, a stone cave that uh, is known to be a place where they would come to worship the, the Greek woodland god, lower, lowercase g, called Pan. Right? It, it's this cave carved out of stone where they would come and worship one of their many gods, And as Jesus and his disciples are walking through this territory, Jesus poses this interesting question. He says, who do do people say that I am, right? I I imagine as he's walking through this territory and he's seeing people head off to worship other gods or whatnot, he turns to his disciples and say, who do people say that I am? See, there's some confusion uh, that Jesus identifies in the world as to who Jesus is. Our world that we live in today recognizes that Jesus was a historical figure. Our world acknowledges that he was a great teacher, that he was a moral man, that he was on par in their minds with someone like a Gandhi. But Jesus recognizes that there may still be some confusion as to who Jesus is. This question gets at the crux of evangelism. When we're with people, when we're sharing our story about Jesus, there is a question posed to them that we cannot answer. We can merely tell them what we've found, what we've experienced. The question is, who do they say that Jesus is? Is he a wise teacher? Is he a moral man? Is he a prophet? Is he, is he a crazy lunatic who's hungry uh, for power? Who do the people say that Jesus is? If you look back at verse 14, the disciples, the group, tell Jesus that some people think he's John the Baptist. That, that some people think that, that he's Elijah. Others think he's the prophet Jeremiah, and still others think he's one of the other prophets. There, there's a bit of kind of, they're not sure who he is, right? Right? It's kind of like if it's a multiple choice question, they're all choosing D, all of the above, because they're not sure. They're hoping one of them, one of the, the answers, is correct. And I think as you, as you see this, as we consider this, we realize that at some point, everyone is going to have to answer this question for themselves. Everyone, either now or when they stand before God in judgment, will have to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? There's no skirting this question. I think now more than ever, we live in a day and an age where it's easy to avoid answering questions that we don't want to answer, right? Someone texts you, well, just don't answer them back, right? Someone calls, let it go to voicemail. Someone sends you an email, just put it off till tomorrow, right? You'll get to it then. It's easy to avoid answering situations that you don't want to answer, and it's easy in our day and age to avoid answering this question, who do we say Jesus is? But there will be no skirting the question. There will be no D, all of the above. I don't know, or I'm undecided, will not be an acceptable answer. I think many of us have have become experts at avoiding the question, yet... (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me. It's always there in the depths of our soul, waiting to be answered. This is one of those questions that I think people want to know. That people hunger to answer, but they don't know what the question is yet. There's this hunger and desire for significance, for uh, for for satisfaction. And, and we spend our lives looking for things that might answer that, that deep, soul-level question. I think this is a question that ultimately needs to be answered. Who do you say that Jesus is? In a speech that C.S. Lewis gave on the BBC radio entitled The Shocking Alternative, he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about about Jesus, They say, I, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He said, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on, on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell we realize, I think he was right, C.S. Lewis is right, in saying that there is no undecided or I'm not sure answer for the people of this world. Church, for a moment, I'm not even speaking about what you believe about Jesus. I'm asking you to think about the loved ones in your life. They may have a hard time even realizing that this is a question that they're going to have to wrestle with at some point. But it starts here with, with that question being answered. Who do you say that Jesus is? We'll get to the implications of that answer later on. But for now, we need to realize that there, Jesus doesn't leave us with an in-between sort of option here. He claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be the son of man. He claims to be the Christ, the Messiah, the one that has been promised to come and rescue and redeem his people. So he's either right and he is God or he's wrong and he's a crazy lunatic. But, but we can't call him a great teacher or a moral leader or a good man that did some great things in history. He's one or the other. And so that question of, uh, of who do we believe Jesus to be is at the very basic level what it means to share the story of Jesus, to share the good news of Jesus, to evangelize this world. And so like Peter, at some point, Jesus is going to ask you, he's going to ask your loved ones, he's going to ask the people in your life, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say, Jesus will say to them, who do you say that I am? Let's read Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 to 17. And he said to them, he said to the group of the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Church, we can't reply as a group, Sufficiently, we believe that he is Christ, the Son of the living God. We can, but that requires that each and every one of us would affirm that for ourselves that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. A couple weeks ago, we recited the Apostles' Creed where we declared together what the church believes about God and about his Son, Jesus, right? And, and we do that because it's a healthy practice to, to realize what we are for. But at the same time, we recognize that it's really about the individual professions or confession of faith in Jesus, of what does Jesus believe. Now, there are a few things—oh, no, sorry, now what does Jesus believe? What do we believe about Jesus? Now, there are a few things I want us to pay attention to in, this, in these verses that will help us understand what Matthew has recorded for us here in Matthew 16. So even though Peter is the one who speaks up and answers Jesus' question, Peter is speaking as a spokesperson for the group, Right? Peter is speaking up to to answer Jesus' question, which Jesus had just posed to the group of disciples, right? The text tells us that, that Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? He doesn't ask Peter. He asks the group, who do you say that I am? And in response, Peter speaks up. And this is not unusual for Peter. He's kind of that guy that steps up and says things on behalf of the group. He's quick to speak. And and slow to listen, right? Probably something unwise, as James will tell us later on. But, but Peter, is that spokesperson on behalf of the group? But even more than the fact that Peter is speaking, it's important for us to notice the titles by which he he confesses Jesus Christ. He tells Jesus, "You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that's been anointed by God to come and rescue your people." But not just that, you're the, the son of the living God, which, by the way, is in contrast to Pan, the, the kind of fake, the made up God of, of, of the people of, uh, um, of Caesarea Philippi. And so, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And he's the son of the living God. He links together these two ideas in Scripture. Back in, in, in first century Palestine, when the people spoke of the Messiah, they, they pictured a son of David, a, a, a descendant of King David, who would come back to rescue the people of Israel, to restore them to glory, right? To get them out from, from underneath the oppression of the Romans and, and to restore them to glory as a nation, That's what they pictured as a Messiah in the first century of Palestine. But but Peter's confession is not just that Jesus is God's promised Savior, but he's actually a son of the living God. What's the significance of that? Well, if we look back in 2 Samuel at the end of David's life, God reminded him of a promise that he had given to him. He had promised David that it would be through his family line that God would save the world. That it was one of David's descendants that would actually be adopted as a son of God and be referred to as a son of God. In Second Samuel chapter 7, we read this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He will build a house for my name. He's going to build a church. He's going to build an assembly for my name. And I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. I will be... To him a father, and he shall be to me a son. See, Peter doesn't say that Jesus is a great and moral teacher. When Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? He doesn't say, hey, you're an amazing rabbi. You're so kind and gracious. You're so giving of your time. You're so compassionate. You do amazing things. No. He links him historically to the promises of God says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You're both our Savior and you're our King. And it's the significance of this response, church, that, that lays the foundation of the church of today. It's the significance of this response that helps to lay down the the foundation of the church today. It's this response that gets at the crux of sharing our faith. That, That people, that we lead others to a place where they can decide for themselves, who do they say that Jesus is? Do they come to this place in their own life by faith, where they believe that Jesus is this Savior that that has been promised in the Scriptures, where they believe that Jesus is more than a man, but he's the Son of the living God? So I think it's Peter's confession and ours that Jesus uses to bind our lives to his and to build the structure of the church. You know, a builder builds, uh, more so back in those days, when, when they would build a house of stone, they would use mortar to bind the stone upon stone to the, to the building to make a strong house. That confession is like the mortar which binds our lives to Jesus, and then binds our lives to Peter, and then binds our lives to the apostles, and then binds our lives to the rest of the church throughout all history, so that we don't have many different church buildings, but we have one spiritual house of God with Jesus as his cornerstone, Peter and the apostles as the foundation stones, and our lives built upon their life and faith, and ministry, and it begins here with Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Look at verses 17 and 18 in our passage. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not Prevail against it. So I think in response to Peter's confession that that Jesus is the Messiah, the the Son of God, Jesus makes it clear that that He's the one that's building this church, right? I think throughout history, sometimes we give too much power and too much authority to someone like a Peter, or someone like a Paul, who's written much of the of the New Testament. I mean, don't get me wrong, They, they they play a very significant role in the building of the church. But we cannot overlook the fact that Jesus is the one who's building his church. When when Peter makes his confession, what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood, Pastor Dan, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God reveals to us. God speaks. God self-reveals. We're merely pointing to him. We're pointing to the words that he's spoken and revealed to us. Jesus is the one who builds his church, not, not us. And so in response to Peter's confession, not only does Jesus make it clear that he's building up a people for himself, but he's doing so by building his house brick upon brick, stone upon stone, life upon life. Now, we see that in this passage, Jesus, kind of, Jesus has a little bit of a sense of humor. He uses Peter's name as, like a, in a, like a pun, like a play on words here. Peter in in Aramaic is Kephas, which means rock. The words in Greek are interchangeable as well, which also mean rock. And yet, there's something significant about these words. It's not just that he's having fun playing with Peter's name, but he's pointing to something significant. See. Throughout scripture, when God changes a person's name, there's something going on here that we need to pay attention to because God's signaling a a shift, a transformation that's about to happen. When Abram was 99 years old, God promised him and gave him a son, and God also changed his name to Abraham, as we know him today. Jacob, when he was renamed Israel, was also told that, that through his 12 sons, through, through the tribes of, of his people, God would make a people for himself. There's a renaming going on there, right? There's, a, there's something significant going on, the change that's happening. Peter's name means rock, and Jesus intends to build his church off of Peter's life and faith, so that other lives would be built upon his life and his faith. Now, in the centuries since this was recorded, there have been a number of different translations and understandings of what's going on and what's being said here. And and sadly, it's created to division in the church. In fact, it's part of the reason, it's part of the places of division between the Protestant church and the Roman Catholic church, right? There's this belief, there's a belief that, 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 that what Jesus is saying here is that God is going to give or Jesus is giving sole authority and sole power to Peter and that what the church has come to 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 interpret that is later on is that that sole authority and that sole power is passed on through the life of Peter from bishop to bishop now where am I getting, first of all, let me just take a quick uh, aside, because I don't have a whole lot of time to spend on this, but this idea of authority comes from this uh, later on in verse 19 when, when Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth, I'll bind in heaven, whatever you loose on earth, I'm going to loose in heaven. It's this idea that the person who held the keys held responsibility. There weren't like, we've got key fobs, we've got multiple copies, you can go down to Home Depot and pay a dollar and put your key in a machine, and it'll pop out more copies or whatever, however much it is. You know, we can get many, many keys to copied for different doors, right? But in those days, there was one set of keys. And the person who held those keys was considered in a place of authority because they alone allowed entry and exit into a building, right? God is giving his authority to someone here in this passage. Either it's Peter or it's the apostles as a whole or it's the church But but it can't be all. It can't. It's got to be one of those answers, right? And and that that belief that Peter holds sole authority and sole responsibility for entry into the kingdom and, and and permitting or denying people into the kingdom is is believed to be. What I think is maybe I don't think it's the right idea. I don't think we can affirm that that Peter is given sole authority here and sole responsibility. Why? Let me let me just give you a reason why I believe that that's not what the Bible is saying here. Well, first of all, when when we look at how the early church is founded, as recorded in scriptures, you realize you see that Peter does not have sole authority. In the book of Acts, in Acts fifteen. Peter actually finds himself in a situation where he's sitting underneath the authority of James and the Jerusalem council. So, so already, as the church is formed and growing, Peter is not one with sole authority and, 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 at the top of the food chain. He's actually someone who sits under the authority of others. Or there's this passage in Galatians chapter 2. Let me, let me read it for you. But it's a passage where Paul actually rebukes Peter. Because Peter has made a mistake. Peter is in need of grace and forgiveness because Peter has been disobedient to God's plan, right? Uh, We read this in Galatians 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, that's Peter, by the way, I opposed him him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, fearing the, the Jewish people and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter was like switching sides. He was playing to whatever the kind of the, the the fair weather uh, group was, right? And 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 Paul says, no, that's that's not right. So my question is this: If Jesus intended to give authority to one man over his church, you would think Jews, Jesus would choose a man, a who would not have to sit under the authority of other men, other leaders in the church, and also one who would not be making mistakes, not be. Uh, incorrectly interpreting the gospel message and, and living in a way that contradicted the truth of the gospel. So I don't think that Peter has sole authority over the church. I don't think that that's what the scriptures are saying. Another view is that Jesus is actually referring to himself as the rock of the church, as the rock foundation. And this view has merit, right? It's not necessarily uh, out of line with other parts of Scripture that, that where Jesus talks about himself as the rock, right? In Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus gives the illustration of these two builders, one who builds his house in the sand and the other who builds his house on a rock foundation, in that example, it's Jesus' life and his teachings that are the rock foundation. So it's possible that that's what what Jesus is saying here. But the context of the passage is that Jesus isn't talking to himself. He's talking to Peter. The, 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 the passage, in the passage itself, Jesus is saying, in a sense, Peter, you are the rock. So it's, it doesn't make sense within the context of our passage that Jesus would be the rock that he would build the church on, at least here in Matthew chapter 16. Now, I do believe what, what is happening here, this is the view that I believe is true, is that, that, that Jesus is absolutely saying that Peter is the rock upon which he will build his church. But what I think we need to, in order to correctly understand what he's saying here, is not that Peter has sole authority over the church, but that Peter is the first among equals, Peter is kind of going first. He's a trailblazer in the faith. He is the first to speak up and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But but let me give you a little bit of a a further text to explain why I think this might be true. Because it's it's actually how Peter speaks of himself. Peter doesn't say, "I, I I, I am the church's sole authority. Peter speaks of himself in a different way. In, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this. And he's talking about the church. He says, As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in, sight, in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in this passage, it's Jesus who is the cornerstone, the the foundation, the the core foundation of the church building. Peter is just a stone that's built off of the cornerstone itself, right? So Peter doesn't say, I am the one with sole authority. He says, I am a stone that's built on the sole authority, which is Jesus Christ, who's the head of the church, in, in, in whose image we're all being built up to maturity and unity, In Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, right? So Peter never claims to be the most important rock in the foundation, the cornerstone. He he acknowledges that that position belongs to Jesus alone as the living stone who's been rejected by men. Instead, Peter claims to be one of many living stones, one of you and I, one of us upon which Jesus builds his church. So I think that in confessing that Jesus is both the Messiah and the son of the living God, Peter is this first rock to be placed upon the cornerstone of Jesus's life. In Peter's life we see an example that that moment of faith that the moment of, of turning, of living no longer in the darkness, but living in the light, of turning away from sin and turning to God in repentance, is this moment of declaring, who do you say Jesus is? He is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so as Peter is this first rock to be placed upon the cornerstone of Jesus' life, we follow in his example. We become built up as a church, as A stone upon stone is bound together through that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But these stones, and this is where maybe the the imagery falls short, these stones are not dead and lifeless. They're not meaningless. At the beginning of our time, I said, your story has purpose and significance. You may not think very highly of your story, or you may be ashamed of your story, but you are not a lifeless stone. You are a stone that's, that, that's indwelled with meaning and purpose. We're not some pretty decoration around the house of God. We're part of building it up, making it strong, being an established building, a house. See, our lives of faith built upon the rock of Jesus provide stability in the storms of this world. The church is to be an example of the love and grace of God the generosity of God the power of God to work in and through a people Jesus doesn't work in individual lives he works in a community of faith building us together see Jesus gave me a faith in him i've come to faith in Jesus but but he did so by building on the faith of my parents. I grew up in a Christian home. My, my mother and my father, they each had a relationship with Jesus. And I, and I grew up learning about Jesus through them, not just through the words that they spoke, but the lives that they lived. So Jesus built up his church through my parents. He, he built up his church through my grandma. I've shared that story before. Her faith influence on my life he he built up my life through my pastor in college who who came alongside me at a a difficult time in my life and mentored me in the faith he 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 built my faith through a friend named drew he he built up my faith in, in in christ through a friend named larry He built up my faith through my wife, Tara. He built up my faith through my kids and observing them walking through life, trusting in Jesus. See, we don't all have a story where we were brought up in a Christian home with two loving parents who love the Lord, but that doesn't matter. God has put people in your life. There are people in your life who have made the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, upon which whose whose lives he has built you up and he's called you close and he's wanting to bind you to the the rock of the church but maybe even more so important this morning is that maybe you're that rock maybe you're that rock le- you're in this position like Peter, where after Peter, the apostles are built onto the foundation, and then the early church forms and begins growing and growing and growing. After Pentecost, you know, they say, the, the word says that over 3,000 came to know and trust in the Lord. But it starts with that one person, Peter, who makes this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Maybe you are like Peter in your sphere of influence, You're the the person whose faith in Jesus God wants to build off of. We're not a decoration in the house of God. We're not some stones that hold down papers on a desk. We're living stones. God, God has given his authority not to one person. God has given his authority to the church. To do what? To point people to entry into the kingdom of God. This idea of binding and loosening, you know, again, there's a couple different understandings of what that could be. In my mind, that's pointing to the things that are permitted, that, that, that permit people into the kingdom of God and deny people into the p- kingdom of God. I think the church is given authority to declare what those things are. Not because we created them, but because we find these things in the word of God to, to, to declare what who is permitted into the kingdom of God who is denied, it's purely by that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And God has given his authority to go out and to see the people of God built up in his image. See, Peter is this first to be given the keys of the kingdom, to bind up and loose what needs to be bound up and loosed. But that authority that that Peter passes on to the the apostles and the rest of the church, it's really only saying and doing what the Word of God says and does. So I don't think Peter is to be deified. I don't think we're to raise Peter up on a pedestal above others as having uh, more authority than, than others. Peter is a first among equals, he's a part of the priesthood of believers, the priesthood of the saints. And it's Jesus who's building his church. See, so I think one of the things that we need to acknowledge in, in seeing Peter as a first among equals is that he's the first to experience the new and the old coming together in Jesus. In verse 18, when Jesus says to the group, I will build my church, there's something interesting happening here. The word order is putting emphasis on my. Jesus, you can almost imagine him saying, I will build My church. Right? There's a significance there. This word that he uses, ecclesia, really refers only to an assembly of people. We use uh, ecclesia, is how we translate church, right? And when we talk about church, we talk about buildings. Oh, I go to Trinity Baptist Church. They're over at 300 North Benson Road, right? Or I go to such and such church. Or I go to that church. Or I go to that church. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about Peter's house or Paul's house or this person's house where, where the church will gather. He's talking about a people, right? In the Old Testament, the people of God, they were to be holy. They were to be set apart. They were to be a nation separate from the nations around them. They were to be an assembly of God, an ecclesia of God. And so, you know, the New Testament never speaks of, the, of an Ecclesia as a building, but, but neither does the Old Testament in the sense that, that it was always intended to be central to their identity, that they were an assembly of the people of God, right? I, I think it's important for us to understand that, that we are not a building, but we're a, a, an assembly of God that has built life upon life, Bound together by our confession that Jesus is Christ, the Son of the living God. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See, God's doing a new thing. He's not just bringing together the, this old understanding of what the church was, what the people of God were. He's, he's, kind of, he's redefining, he's bringing a newness to it. And he's uniting the, the old and the new. This new thing that God is doing, the uniqueness of what he's doing, is he's bringing together the, the Jewish people and the Gentiles. The, the people under the old covenant and the new covenant. United together in Jesus, who, as Paul says here, is the cornerstone He's building his church. He's building his new temple. And he, he, he's doing it by starting a, on a new foundation with the 12 apostles in which Jesus is the chief cornerstone and our lives are built upon the life and faith and teaching which they laid out for us in the early church. So church, I want to encourage you to be bold and courageous not because you have to know every aspect of the Bible in order to go and talk to someone about the faith, but be bold and courageous because the way the church is built is not by how many people you've spoken to this week about Jesus. The way the church is built is by Jesus building his church life upon life, upon life, upon life, I want you to make sure to see this last part in our passage. In verse 18, after Jesus tells Peter that he'll build his church upon the life, faith, and ministry that flow out of Peter by his confession, Jesus says this. He says, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this seems like a—it's an interesting phrase. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This idea of the gates of hell is really just an interesting way of saying the power of death, of death itself. Death will not win out over the church. In other words, the church that Jesus is building cannot be stopped. You can tear down the walls of this church building, but the church itself will never go away. We have the privilege of being a church that has many, many years of history. We were in one location in Bridgeport, and then we moved here to Fairfield. We never stopped being Jesus' church. Our building may change. The facilities might change. But the church will never go away. Death cannot defeat it. You know, death couldn't even hold Jesus back. That's one of the things we celebrate on on Easter, on on Resurrection Sunday, is the fact that even death couldn't hold Jesus back. But that's just part of what makes Jesus' resurrection so powerful. It's not just the rising to new life that Jesus accomplished for us. It's also his defeat of death. Death holds no power over the church Death holds no power over you and I. We have nothing to fear in death. We love our family. We love the things that God has provided. But there is far greater waiting for us on the other side of death. So death is not something we fear. And death will not defeat the church because the church is an eternal assembly of the people of God that God has begun to build through his son Jesus right now, today, through you and me. The victory over death has been won. That's a great promise we have, church. We don't have to be afraid or feel guilty about how much or how much we haven't shared our faith with other people. That's going to be a work that is ongoing day by day, year after year, until Jesus returns, and then the church will be the church for all eternity with Jesus as our cornerstone. Church, The church isn't going anywhere. Jesus has already won the war for this world. And so God is just graciously and patiently giving time to this world to switch sides, to join him, to become a part of this holy temple that he's building with Jesus as his cornerstone and Peter and the apostles as, the, as a foundation, and we were built upon them, life upon life upon life. So what's your, jo- your role What's your job? Tell your Jesus story. Every story is different. That's the beauty of it. We, we like, to, th- we like to, to think that we're like Henry Ford building these cars on an assembly line and everything is going to look the same. It's not. It's not. We each have a unique story to tell, and please get over the fact that now that we're saved and we're in the church, we can become this decorative rock that sits on a desk and holds paper down. We are not to be a dead rock that's pointless, meaningless, and just sits there and looks pretty, as pretty as I am. We're living stones. Jesus wants to build upon your life. He's got someone in mind that he wants to say, hey, you need to go and see Dan or or paul or 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 Tara, or fill in blank with your name, because it's through your life that Jesus wants to build upon his his church. You aren't the building. Jesus is building the people of God, this new church that he's growing up. And it's starting with Jesus and Peter and the apostles. You know, this morning, maybe he's been knocking on your heart waiting for you to respond. He's just waiting for you to to declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of the living God. And know this, that as soon as you do, you are being built upon this building that is way bigger than you, that will span eternity now, but that began on that day In Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? So who do you say Jesus is? Is he a madman? Is he a tyrant? Is he a good moral teacher? Or is he the Messiah, the son of the living God and rightful heir to the throne of the kingdom of God? Church, I can give you a guarantee right now. The church isn't going anywhere We live in a day and age where there are church buildings that are closing their doors. It's happening, right? I mean, coming through COVID and and things uh, and, and many other reasons. There are churches that have been in decline and that have closed their doors. But the church isn't going anywhere because the church is not a physical building. Jesus will continue to carry out his plan from today and forevermore. And... And so I want to leave you with this thought, that somewhere out there, there is a person who Jesus intends to build onto your life. Your life has been built into the the family of God through your confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But there are others out there that have yet to be built onto this house, the spiritual house of God, the temple of God, And you need to know that they need to hear your story. They need to hear Jesus' story of how he's working in your life. And it's through that story where you point to Jesus that they'll have the opportunity to say, yeah, you know what, I think Jesus is more than a teacher. He's more than a great moral leader. I I believe that what he said is true, that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that life will be built upon yours And so on and so forth until Jesus returns and brings us home. So get out there and share your your Jesus story. Share the love of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God with others in in such a way that the new temple is built up. Because this church, Jesus' church, isn't going anywhere. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us boldness. Not just to share our story, but boldness to explore our story of how Jesus has been at work in us. Lord, you came to this world because you love the people of this world. And you desire us to to become a part of what you're doing and what you're building. The family of God, the house of God, the temple of God. So, Lord, we ask you to have your way in us. Help us, for for those of us who need to hear, help us to hear Jesus saying to us, who do you say I am? For those of us who who feel confident that that is what we believe, Lord, give us eyes to look upon the world and see those people who we need to share our story with, who we need to build a relationship with, and, and who we need to point to Jesus, appoint them in the direction of Jesus, so that they too can make a decision for themselves who they say Jesus is. And Lord, most of all, I pray that you would allow us to go out from here, not feeling guilt or obligation about sharing our faith, but that we would hear most clearly, you, Father, uh, your your Son Jesus, say that I will build my church that you will build the church upon our lives and upon our faith in Jesus. So Lord, have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.